I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, writer and author Johan Hari on why many of us are finding it harder to stay on task. You can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle very quickly between the tasks. You're like, wait, what did Jonathan just ask me? What's that message on WhatsApp? What does it say on the TV about Ukraine? What's the message here on Facebook? You juggle quickly between topics. And it turns out that juggling comes with a really big cost. And later, the joy of sublime focus and a path forward to reclaiming our minds. When you're in a flow state, it just, it flows. That's, you know, this is where the phrase comes from. The way one rock climber put it is they said, you know, when you're climbing a rock and you get into flow, it's like you are the rock you're climbing. Johan Hari joins us for the full hour to talk about the forces that are stealing our attention and what we can all do about it. That's coming up on Life Examined. If you're like many of us, you may have noticed your ability to pay attention isn't that great. Perhaps your mind wanders off more than it used to, or you reread something you just finished reading. It may not be that noticeable, as work still gets done as we make it through our days. But when's the last time you did one task completely uninterrupted for even an hour? It's hardly a surprise. Our lives are jam-packed with distractions, from apps on our phones to email, Zoom meetings, TV, all technology specifically engineered to literally grab our attention. Studies show that an office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. And a small study found the average American college student now focuses on any one task for only 65 seconds. So is our ability to concentrate vanishing, or are we openly being robbed of our attention spans? And what, if anything, can we do individually and collectively to reclaim our minds? Writer and author Johan Hari believes we have a serious attention crisis, one with huge implications for how we live. Hari is the author of many books, including Chasing the Scream, The Search for the Truth About Addiction and Lost Connections, Why You're Depressed and How to Find Hope, and his most recent book we're discussing is called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. Johan Hari, welcome to Life Examined. Oh, hey, Jonathan. I'm really glad to be with you. So, Johan, tell me a bit about the genesis of this book. Did you find that you yourself were struggling with attention-related issues? Yeah, the reason I wrote Stolen Focus is because I could feel my own attention was getting worse and worse. With each year that passed, it felt like things that require deep focus that are so important to me, like reading books, having proper long conversations, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? I could, I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I noticed this seemed to be happening to lots of the people around me, particularly the young people in my life who I love, who often seem to be kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat. And, and, I, and I noticed this was, you know, a very widespread trend. The average American who works in an office now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. You know, one small study found the average American college student now focuses on any one task for only 60 seconds. And, and I wanted to understand, well, you know, is this just a sense we have or is this really happening? And if it is happening, crucially, what's causing it? And, and most importantly, what can we do about it? So I ended up going on this big journey all over the world to interview over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus from Moscow to Miami to Montreal. And I learned from those experts and from many other people who've been affected by this attention crisis in one way or another, that there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make your attention worse. Some of them are in our technology, but they actually go much wider. And I learned that loads of the factors that can make your attention worse have been hugely rising in recent years. So anyone listening, if you're struggling to focus and pay attention, this isn't your fault. It's not on you. It's happening to almost everyone. And the book is called Stolen Focus because our attention has been stolen from us by some really big forces. But once you understand what those forces are, we can begin to get our attention back, I learned. Let's stay with this idea of human agency here, though. I mean, one story we can tell ourselves is that just focus harder, put your phone away, just pay attention, and your focus and attention span will get better. 
But you're also bringing in something different, which is that there are these larger forces at play. There are things that are almost out of our control that are impacting our attention spans. Well, it's in our control, but it's in our control at a different level. So when I started working on this, you know, I basically had two stories in my head about why my attention was getting so much worse. The first was, you're weak. What's wrong with you? Why can't you resist these temptations? pull yourself together. I had a very negative internal monologue about this. And the other was, I thought, well, someone invented the smartphone and that screwed me over, right? So I later learned, of course, that these two narratives are hugely oversimplified. But because I had that very simple story in my head, I adopted a, a initially a kind of um, incredibly personal solution, which is that I went away for three months to a place called Provincetown in Cape Cod and had no smartphone and no laptop that could get onto the internet. So I went completely offline for three months to see what would happen. I'm sure we, we can talk about that more. But actually what I learned is with this attention crisis, with all of the 12 factors that are harming our ability to focus and pay attention, there's two levels at which we've got to deal with those 12 factors. I think of them as defense and offense. There are loads of things that we can all do as isolated individuals today and tomorrow to protect ourselves and our children from these forces that are harming our attention. I'm passionately in favour of those individual changes. I'm sure we're going to talk about lots of them. Um, they are really important. But I want to be really honest with people because I don't think most books about attention are. Those things are really important, those defensive measures. But on their own, they're not going to solve the problem because at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day and then leaning forward and going, hey buddy, you might want to learn how to meditate, then you wouldn't scratch so much. And you want to go, well, screw you, I'll learn to meditate, that's hugely valuable, but you need to stop pouring itching powder on me, which is why we need to have this second and I think the most important layer of this fight, which is we've got to go on offense. There are forces that are doing this to us. They are big and powerful forces. They are very recent inventions. Most people listening will be able to remember a time before most of these factors were acting so aggressively on our attention. It doesn't have to be that way, right? We can take on the forces that are doing that to us. I know that can sound a bit fancy, but I went to places that have done it from France to New Zealand. I've learned how we can do it. So we've got to have both these levels. When you say it's, what can we do about it? There are things we can do about it at two levels. There are things we can do as individuals and as parents, and then there are things we can do together in groups as citizens. I know both those things can sound a bit fancy without specific examples. Obviously, I'm sure we're gonna explore lots of specifics about it, but those two things are absolutely achievable, and that is where our power lies. Some of it lies in us as individuals, but much more of our power lies in together, collectively taking on these forces. So let's jump into some of these larger forces at play and begin to tell us a little bit about some of these 12 factors that you've mentioned. I'll give you an example of something that I think will be playing out for every single person listening today. I went to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, to interview one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, an amazing man named Professor Earl Miller. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you've got to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not significantly changed in 40,000 years. It's not going to change on any time scale any of us are going to see. But what's happened is we've fallen for a mass delusion. The average American teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. So what happens is scientists like Professor Miller and his colleagues get people into labs, not just younger people, older people too, and get them to think they're doing more than one thing at a time. And what they discover is always the same. You can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle very quickly between the tasks. You're like, wait, what did Jonathan just ask me? What's that message on WhatsApp? What does it say on the TV about Ukraine? What's the message here on Facebook? Wait, what did Jonathan ask me again? So we're all living in this kind of very rapid juggling between tasks. You juggle quickly between topics and it turns out that juggling comes with a really big cost. The fancy name for it is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You'll make more mistakes, 
you'll be much less creative, you'll remember much less of what you do. And when you hear that, I remember when Professor Miller first explained it to me and I had already gone through a lot of the, the science and interviewed other scientists about this. I remember thinking, okay, yeah, I get it. I can feel that, but that's a small effect, right? It is not a small effect. This is a really big effect. To give you an example of a small study that really helped to bring this home for me, Hewlett Packard, the printer company, did a study where they got a scientist in and he split their workers into two groups. And the first group was told, just get on with your task, whatever it is, and you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told, get on with your task, whatever it is, and at the same time, you're going to have to answer a heavy load of email and phone calls, so pretty much how most of us live. At the end of it, the scientists tested the IQ of both groups. The group that had not been interrupted scored, on average, 10 IQ points higher than the group that had been interrupted. To give you a sense of how big an effect that is, Jonathan, if you and me sat down now and got stoned, we smoked a fat spliff together, our IQs would go down by five points. So at least in the short term, being chronically distracted in the way we are is twice as bad for your intelligence as being stoned, right? Now, this is why Professor Miller says we are living in what he calls a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of being interrupted all the time. Now, we have to think about that interruption. If we, let's think back about what we were just saying about defense and offense, how we can respond to that, right? So there are lots of things we can do to defend ourselves. So uh, I'm stupidly, I'm pointing at it, but obviously this is the radio, no one can see me. In the corner over there, I have something called a K safe. It's a plastic safe. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put on the lid, you turn the dial at the top, and it will lock your phone away for anything between five minutes and a whole day. I use that phone every day, four hours a day to write. I won't sit down and watch a film with my boyfriend unless we both imprison our phones in the, the phone jail. I won't have my friends around for dinner unless we all put our phones in the phone jail. That's an example of something we can do to defend ourselves. Really important, I go through dozens of other things. But, but we've got to understand that we are currently, and technology is only one of the 12 factors I write about in Stolen Focus, but we've got to understand the technology we are using at the moment is specifically designed to interrupt us. It is specifically designed to 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 have precisely that switch cost effect. It was really interesting for me because I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley interviewing people who designed key aspects of the technology and particularly the apps on it that we now use. And it, and it was fascinating to me to realize how uncomfortable they are with what they've done. You know, there's a wonderful man named Dr. James Williams who'd been at the heart of Google who decided to quit because one day he spoke at a tech conference, audience full of people who were designing the stuff that anyone listening, your kids are using right now. And he said to them, if there's anyone here who wants to live in the world that we're creating, please put up your hand. And not one of them put up their hand. One of the key reasons is about the effect on our attention. And I want to give you an analogy that helped me to think, understand what it's doing and how we can put it right, that really empowered me. For a minute, it'll sound a bit strange. So I don't know, how old are you, Jonathan? 37. Right, so you'll just remember this. I can just remember it. When we were kids, the most common form of gasoline in the United States was leaded gasoline, right? And in fact, all over the world at the time. Um, and, and a little bit before my time and your time, it was very common that people painted their homes with leaded paint. And it was discovered by scientists that exposure to lead really harms people's brains and in particular harms children's ability to focus and pay attention. Um, so what happened is a group of ordinary moms across the United States banded together, they were mostly what were called housewives then, and said, why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing these for-profit companies to screw up our kids' brains? This is crazy, right? So they fought, and it's important to understand what they fought for and what they didn't fight for. These moms did not say, so let's ban all gasoline, let's ban all paint, right? They didn't say that. What they said is let's ban the specific element of the paint and the, and the gasoline that's harming our kids' attention. They fought and they fought for their kids, these mothers, and they succeeded. Everyone will, listening will know. There's no more leaded gasoline. There's no more leaded paint. As a result, the CDC says that the average American child is three to five IQ points smarter than they would have been had we not banned lead. Now this really, I know it can sound strange, but this really helped me to understand the tech because the way big tech want us to think about this debate is are you pro-tech or are you anti-tech? And when you hear that, you're like, well, I'm not gonna give up my laptop. I'm not gonna give up my phone. I'm not gonna join the Amish. I guess I must be pro-tech, right? 
That is not the debate. What I learned from the people at the heart of Silicon Valley, the heart of this machine, is not are you pro-tech or you're anti-tech, it's what tech do we want designed for what purposes working in whose interests. Because at the moment, there's an equivalent to the lead in the lead paint, right? At the moment, anyone listening, if you take out your phone, please don't while I'm doing this for all the reasons we've talked about, but if you took out your phone right now and you open Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or any of the mainstream social media apps and you start scrolling, those companies begin to make money out of you in two ways. The first way is really obvious. Everyone knows about advertising. The second way is much more important. Everything you do is scanned and sorted by their artificial intelligence algorithms to figure out who you are. They are gathering tens of thousands of details about you. Now, partly that's to sell that information to advertisers and partly it's to learn how to hack your attention, how to keep you scrolling. Because every time you pick up the device and start scrolling, they make money. And every time you put it down, that revenue stream disappears. So all of that AI, all of their algorithms are designed with one goal in mind. How do we get Jonathan to pick up his phone as often as possible and scroll as long as possible? How do we get Jonathan's kids to pick up their phone as often as possible and scroll as long as possible? This isn't some conspiracy theory. This is what they say. This is what the people who designed this machinery, many of whom I spoke to, candidly admit. But social media doesn't have to work that way in the same way that we, we don't have to have gasoline with lead in it or paint with lead in it, right? There are different ways social media can work. I talk about them in the book, I'm happy to talk about them more. But it's important for us to understand these factors that are invading our attention. They are designed to hack and inv invade our attention because at the moment, that is how those companies make money, right? This is what Sean Parker, one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook said, not to me, he said this publicly, we designed Facebook to maximally invade your attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our kids' brains. So this damage to our attention is not an accident. It's by design. They are hacking our attention. Staying with this idea of neuroscience just for a minute, I remember speaking with Laurie Santos from Yale, and she's part of this larger positive psychology movement. And, you know, we were talking about how the brain works and how we often get these signals, which are primarily signals of craving. And they aren't going to take us anywhere good, but we think that, you know, if we're on five different apps or we scroll longer, that it'll do something good for us when really it does the exact opposite. And I, I wonder if you came across this at all in your work, that there is just something about the brain that is programmed to do this, and that these apps are essentially almost just exploiting one part of the way that our minds work. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm very familiar with these arguments. I think there's some truth in them, but I'm very wary of locating the problem in the human brain rather than the problem in the machinery that's been created. It would be like saying, you know, the obesity epidemic is caused by a flaw in the fact that we want food. And you're like, right, well, why is there a huge obesity epidemic in the United States and almost no obesity epidemic in Denmark? They've got the same brains in Denmark as people in the United States. What they've got is a different food supply system and cities that you can walk and bike around. And in the same way, sure, there are flaws in human psychology. Let's think about a much more basic ne uh, neurological need, sleep, right? So I spent one of the 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus that are profoundly damaging our ability to focus and pay attention is the extraordinary decline in the amount we sleep. We sleep 20% less than people did a century ago. Children sleep 85 minutes less than they did. And I'll never forget a conversation I had with Dr. Charles Seisler at Harvard Medical School, who's one of the leading sleep experts in the world. Um, and him explaining to me, you know, when you sleep, your brain is repairing, your brain is healing itself. The whole time you're awake, your brain is creating something called metabolic waste. Uh, it's what one scientist called brain cell poop, right? It's building up throughout the day. And when you go to sleep, your brain cleans itself, a watery fluid rinses through your brain and carries that brain cell poop out of your brain down into your liver and eventually it exits your body. When you don't sleep, you literally, your brain is clogged up right? This is why often when we're tired, we feel kind of hungover, we feel kind of exhausted. Um, and this is, a, this is having a huge effect on our ability to focus and pay attention. So I don't think we have to go to the idea of like flaws in human biology. Human biology isn't that flawed when it comes to these things. We're being exposed to a highly sophisticated machinery and many other factors, air pollution, the way we eat is profoundly harming 
our ability to focus and pay attention. I, I talk about that speci uh, the specific elements of this in the book. We can explore it more. I go through many different factors in the book um, wow. that are, are, are harming, that are factors in our environment that are very recent, right? If this was a flaw in human biology, it would have always been a problem for humans. And of course, there's always been some struggle with attention for human beings, just like when there's been enough food, there's been some people who became obese. But we're living, you know, as Professor Joel Nigg, one of the leading experts on children's attention problems in the world said to me, we need to ask if we're living in what he called an attentional pathogenic environment, an environment that is profoundly undermining our ability to focus and pay attention, which is quite separate from any biological problems we might face. You mentioned food just a moment ago, and this is something I really want to talk about. You say it's one of the 12 factors. So how does food have anything to do with our attention spans? Of the 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus that are harming our attention, this is the one I think probably that most surprised me and it's the one that I struggle with the most um like um speaking to you in a room that has a KFC box in it which gives you a sense of where I'm coming from um but so I interviewed a load there's this fascinating new movement I'm sure you've come across called nutritional psychiatry which is studying how the ways we eat profoundly affect the way we think the way we feel so I interviewed loads of people who are nutritional psychiatrists and other people who've studied aspects of this and I learned from them there's scientific aspects, evidence for the three aspects in the way we eat that are really damaging our focus and attention. Ima so the first is, imagine you have the standard American breakfast, what I grew up eating as well. So you have, say, uh, you know, a sugary cereal or you have white bread with butter on it. What that does is it releases a huge amount of energy really quickly into your brain a lot of glucose which feels great you're like hooray i've woken up for the day you know the day has begun but what that's done is it releases so much energy so fast that a couple of hours later you'll get to your desk or your kid will get to their school desk and you'll experience a huge energy crash and and you'll really and you'll be filled with what we call brain fog you know where you just can't pay attention very well until you have another sugary carby snack and um, the way dale pinnock one of the leading nutritionists in britain put it to me at the moment it's like we're living on a roller coaster of energy spikes and energy crashes throughout the day with these periods of brain fog it's almost like to use another analogy he used it's like we're putting rocket fuel into a mini, those little British cars from the 70s. It'll go really fast for 10 minutes and then it'll just stop, right? Whereas if you put the fuel that the human body evolved to use, if you have, for example, oatmeal for breakfast, that releases energy pretty steadily throughout throughout the, the morning. You won't experience those peaks and troughs of, of energy spikes and crashes. But our diet at the moment is just a huge, it's just one spike and one crash after another. The second element is for your brain to work fully your diet needs to con needs to contain certain key nutrients a famous one is omega-3s which you get in fresh fish and sardines our diets are really lacking a lot of those crucial nutrients and sadly supplements just don't cut it they don't make up for it because uh, your body doesn't metabolize uh, nutrients from from supplements in the same way as it does when you eat actual food the third and for me this is the most disturbing is that it's not just that our diets lack stuff we need. Our diets actually contain chemicals that act on our brains, and particularly our children's brains, and a lot of my book is about children, act on our brains like drugs. So there was a study in Britain in a city called Southampton in, uh, in uh, 2007, where they took 197 kids and they split them into two groups. And the first group was just given water to drink and the second group was given water laced with the kind of chemical dyes that are found in loads of this food that we buy at the supermarket, loads of popular candies like M&Ms. And then the kids were monitored. The kids that had drunk the, the, the dyes were significantly more likely to become manic, to be hyperactive, to struggle to focus. So you can see how these, these key elements in the way we're eating are profoundly harming our ability to focus and pay attention. It was one of so many factors that I learned about that I hadn't even... Because when we think about the debate about attention and focus, we think primarily about our technology and there are real elements in our technology that are profoundly harming our, our attention I talk a lot about how we can put them right but actually I would suppose that's only one of 12 factors right that it's a really important one for sure but it's one of many fa I, I hadn't realized for example that the, the 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 transformation in the nature of childhood that's taken place in the last 30 to 40 years and particularly accelerated in the last two years because of the pandemic 
has profoundly harmed our kids' ability to focus and pay attention. I can talk more about that. But these are very broad factors, but they are all solvable. With every one of these causes, I went to somewhere that had solved them. And I talk about how they did it. And one aspect of this food conversation to me that's always so disturbing is thinking about food deserts, just lack of fresh, good food in lower income neighborhoods all across America. And then thinking about how this trickles down to education or attention spans and you know, the children that are living in these areas have really no control over the, the circumstances around them. They're powerless at the level of the individual, but again, at the level of the society, we can deal with this. The Netherlands and the United States were at the same level with obesity in the 1970s. So it was rising. They could see it was going up. It was small by our standards, but rising. And what happened is the Netherlands had a concerted movement of ordinary citizens who saw what was coming and demanded the solutions. So they demanded that their cities were built in ways they could bike and walk around, and they demanded that the government subsidize healthy food, not unhealthy food. As a result, the Netherlands has extremely low levels of obesity, and we all know where we are in the United States with levels of obesity. Now, almost half of Americans are overweight or obese, and I include myself in that. So you can see again, when we talk about powerlessness, I understand what you mean. We've got to be very careful at what level we talk about powerlessness. For some of these factors, I mean, for all of them, there's something people can do, even at an individual level. But people can be relatively powerless as isolated individuals, but very powerful when we identify the problem correctly, band together and actually solve it. We'll be back with Johan Hari after this short break. And a big thank you to all of you that have joined our Life Examined Facebook group. One of our big goals in 2022 is to grow our community in new ways. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. Stay close. We'll be back in a moment. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Johan Hari, author of Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again, talk about today's huge challenge for parents, getting their kids to focus on something other than their phones or another screen. And concerns over safety have meant the virtual disappearance of children playing freely outside, away from parental supervision. So would more outdoor play help children develop healthier levels of concentration and focus? Once again, here's Johan Hari explaining how communities are working to address that. One of the heroes of my book is a woman called Lenore Skenazi. And Lenore is not the hero of the book because she describes a problem. Lots of people can describe problems. Lenore is the hero of the book because she's building the solution. And everyone listening who's got kids, I really urge you to, to pay attention to Lenore and her story. So Lenore grew up in a suburb of Chicago in the 1960s. From when she was five years old, she left home on her own every morning and walked to school on her own. It was about 15 minutes away. She would generally bump into all the other five, six, seven-year-olds because in the mid-1960s in the United States, every child walked to school on their own. By the time Lenore was a mom in the 90s in Queens in New York, that had ended. Every parent drove or walked their kid to school and you were expected to be waiting at the gates to let them out. Now, this was part of a much bigger change in childhood. By the time you got... So when Lenore, when she would leave school at the end of the day when she was a kid, from when she was five onwards, she would wander the neighbourhood with her friends. They played freely. They, they did all sorts of things. They played ball games. They chased daisies. They did all sorts of things. And then they just went home when they were hungry and there were no adults watching over them, right? That was what childhood looked like for all children in the world in the mid-1960s. But again, by the time Lenore was a mom in the 90s, that was over, right? Childhood became something that happened behind closed doors or at best under tight adult supervision. By 2003, only 10% of American kids ever played outside without an adult watching them. And it turns out that childhood we've lost, which existed for all of human history until like 30 years ago, contained loads of things that were really important for kids to develop a healthy form of attention and focus. To give you a real low-hanging fruit one, exercise. 
the evidence is overwhelming that kids who get to run around form more brain connections and can pay attention better. One of the single best things you can do for kids who are struggling to pay attention is let them run around a lot and then come back. But there's an even deeper thing, and this has been shown by the Chilean scientist, Dr. Isabel Benke and others. When kids play freely with other kids, without adults standing over them enforcing the rules, they learn how to use their attention. They learn what they find interesting and meaningful, which is really important for attention. They learn how to persuade other kids to pay attention to what they're interested in. They learn how to take turns with other kids. They learn so much about attention. And we've just taken all that away from them, right? Now, Lenore was realizing this. She was a mother, she was seeing this. And at first she thought, well, the solution is kind of obvious. I've just got to persuade the other parents I know to let their kids play outdoors. But Lenore discovered that it doesn't really work to just persuade parents at an individual level. Because if you're the only parent letting your kid go out, they get scared, you look nuts. Actually, often people call the cops. So what happened is Lenore built a much bigger project and one that everyone listening can get involved with. Um, she runs a group called Let Grow. And what Let Grow is letgrow.org. And what Let Grow do is they go to whole schools and whole communities and persuade everyone to give their kids increasing levels of independence that build up to letting their kids play outside. And I think of, of all the conversations I had for my book, Stolen Focus, probably the most moving was with a 14-year-old boy in Long Island who was part of a Let Grow program. This is just before COVID hit. And this was a big, strong 14-year-old boy. He was taller than me. And until this program began, he had never been allowed out of his house on his own. His parents wouldn't even let him go for a run around the block. I asked him why, and he said, because they're scared of all these kidnappings. That was the phrase he used. This is a town where the olive oil store is across the street from the French bakery. And he had a level of fear that would be appropriate if he lived in Ukraine, right? And then this program began, and he started to play outdoors with all the other kids in his neighborhood. And I asked him, what did you do? And he said, oh, well, first of all, we played ball games. And then he said, I'll never forget this. He said, we went into the woods and he, and he leaned forward and he said, we don't have any cell phone reception in the woods and we still went. And I said, what, what do you do in the woods? And he said, we built a fort and now we go into the fort and we build other stuff. And Lenore was with me that day. And when that boy left, she said to me, you know, think about human history, all of human history. Young people had to go out and explore. They had to map, they had to hunt, they had to find things. And then we took all that away from them. In fact, the only place where our kids get to explore anything these days is on Fortnite. We can hardly be surprised they become obsessed with it. But that boy, given a tiny little sliver of freedom, what did he do? He went out and he built a fort, right? Now, there are lots of things we need to do to restore attention, to deal with this attention crisis. One of the big things is we need to restore human childhood. I would argue every school in the United States should have a let grow program. We can all see whatever you thought about the COVID restrictions, and I was broadly in favour of them. Whatever you think about them, we can all see it as horrifically damaged our children to have them shut away for two years. If it's, shut, if it's damaged them to have them shut away for two years, it was damaging them before COVID to shut them away. We need to give our kids back a childhood that our grandparents, that our ancestors would have recognized as a childhood. That will go a long way, along with a lot of the other things that I write about in Stolen Focus, to begin to restore their attention. Yeah, and in all your reporting, you got to speak to somebody that talks about what the brain is like when it's working in its kind of optimal state, which is a flow state. And uh, this goes back to the work of the psychologist Csikszentmihalyi. So talk a little bit about why these flow states are so important to the brain and to our sense of flourishing. Yeah, so it's interesting. I, he was a completely extraordinary person. Professor Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, it took me so lo long to learn how to say that before I interviewed him that I like just saying it as often as possible now. But everyone listening will have experienced a flow state at some point in your life. So a flow state is when you're doing something and you really get into it and your sense of time falls away, your sense of ego falls away and you're just in it. And when the flow state ends, you're like, wow, that went quickly, right? And different people get into flow states doing different things. For me, it's writing. For you, it might be rock climbing, you know, um, making bagels, doing brain surgery. It could be a whole range of things. But the science of flow states is really important for us to understand how to get our attention back because flow states are both the deepest form of attention that human beings can provide. And once you get into a flow state, they're the 
easiest form of attention to provide it's not like memorizing facts for an exam right when you're in a flow state it just it flows that's you know this is where the phrase comes from the way one rock climber put it is they said you know when you're climbing a rock and you get into flow it's like you are the rock you're climbing so obviously i wanted to understand okay if this is a kind of gusher of attention that exists inside every human being, where do we drill to get that attention? How do we trigger this, right? So I went to interview Professor Cheek Set Me High in Claremont in California. I think it was the last interview he ever did. It's sadly he died not very long afterwards. And he had been studying flow states for over 50 years by that point. In fact, over 60 years by that point. And he discovered an enormous number of things. But for anyone listening, there, there are three key things he recommended that I took from his recommendations and the, the extraordinary amount of science he built up that really helped me to increase my chances of getting into a flow state. So if you want to get into a flow state, one, you've got to try to do just one thing for a while, right? If you're trying to do two or three or four things, you just won't get into flow. So you've got to decide, okay, today... I want to paint this canvas, I want to write this chapter, I want to climb this rock, whatever it is. Narrow down your goals to one goal. Secondly, you've got to choose a goal that is meaningful to you, right? So different people, you know, I mean, if I tried to climb a rock, I wouldn't get into flow because, you know, I'd be terrible at it. Some people get into flow playing a guitar. When I play the guitar, it sounds like a cat is being strangled. So you've got to, it's got to be a goal that's meaningful to you or your attention will just slip and slide off it. Thirdly, and this is seemed counterintuitive to me at first, it will help if you choose something that's at the edge of your abilities, right? So let's say you're a rock climber, a medium talent rock climber. You don't want to just try and climb over your garden wall. That's too easy. You won't get flow from that. Equally, you don't want to suddenly try and climb Mount Everest. That's too hard, right? You'll just feel stressed. You want to try to climb a slightly higher and harder rock face than the one you climbed before. If you put in place those three things, there's no guarantee, but you really increase your chances of getting into a flow state and, and unlocking your focus. And I think this is so important. I think the whole topic of attention is so important because I would say to anyone listening, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever it is, that thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of attention and focus. And when your ability to pay attention and focus breaks down, your ability to achieve your goals breaks down. Your ability to solve your problems breaks down. But when you start to get your attention back, you begin to feel competent again because you become competent again. And this is something I really experienced as I implemented a lot of the things that I learned from the leading scientists all over the world who I interviewed. But to get there, it's gonna require a shift in focus, right? We need to stop blaming ourselves, right? You need, if you're just responding to your attention problems the way I used to, by going, I'm just weak, right? Or you're responding to your children's attention problems by saying there's something wrong with my kid. You've got to realize this is being done to us, right? It's being done to us by big, powerful forces. And we've got to fight back against those forces. And it requires a shift in psychology. You know, we are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table, right? We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we can take them back. We don't have to tolerate the hacking and pillaging of our attention and our kids' attention. These forces are weak that are doing this to us. They're strong in one sense, but they are politically weak. We can take them on if we want to. We can solve these problems, but we have to understand what's actually causing them and stop just blaming ourselves. Right. And in your book, you talk about this need for a rebellion. I mean, that's the word you use. And on one hand, I hear you. And on the other hand, I wonder, will these forces like Facebook ever be curtailed fully? Can they be curtailed? I, you know, I welcome your thoughts on that. You know, James Williams, who used to work at the heart of Google, said to me, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone said, hey, guys, should we put a handle on this thing? The entire Internet has existed for less than 10,000 days. We can totally deal with these things and many of the other factors that I write about in the book. When you say, can we conceive of a world where this didn't happen? Jonathan, you lived in a world where these things didn't happen. So did I, right? Everyone listening lived in a world where most of these factors were significantly lower than they are now. So we don't have to go into some... Now, clearly we're not going to go back in the sense of disinventing anything, 
nor do we want to. But absolutely, we can solve these factors by taking them on. And I go through in very practical ways in the book how we did that. I'll give you an example of one of dozens of things we could do. In France, in 2018, there was a huge crisis of what they called le burnout, which I don't think I need to translate for anyone. And the French government, under pressure from labor unions, set up an inquiry to figure out, well, what's going on here? Why is everyone so burned out all the time? And they discovered one of the key factors is that 35% of French workers felt they could never, while they were awake, stop, chepi- stop, stop checking their phone or their email because their boss could message them at any time of the day or night. And if they didn't answer, they'd be in real trouble. So this was causing, I mean, I remember when we were kids, Jonathan, the only people who were on call all the time were on call were doctors and the president. And even doctors weren't on call all the time, right? So we went from almost, most people when they finished work went home and work was done, right? Now, almost half the economy are working effectively with part of their brain literally all the time. It's completely exhausting them. So the French government came up, again, under pressure from labor unions, they wouldn't have done it without them, came up with a solution. They introduced into law something called the right to disconnect. It's very simple. Every French worker, one, has to have their work hours legally defined in their contract and two has the legal right to not check their email or answer their phone from their boss once their work hours are over so i went to paris just before covid hit to interview people about this you know rent-a-kill the pest control company got fined seventy thousand euros for getting one complaining that one of their workers had not checked his email an hour after he left work now you can see how a right to disconnect is a big collective change that matches the scale of the changes that have happened in our lives right it's not going back we're not saying people shouldn't have phones it's just a protection that is built in because if you've got a device where your boss can interrupt you all the time we've got to have all the time we've got to have some sensible controls around it that's one very practical example you know france is not a science fiction creation it's a real country they've done it right i talk about many other things some of which have been done in the united states many of which have been done in other countries dozens of things like that which together are ways of us getting our attention back. But you can see that's something that you you, you can't do that. As, I mean, maybe someone's listening who's very powerful and influential at their work, and they can say, okay, from now on, I'm asserting a right to disconnect. But most people listening will not be in that position. That's something we have to fight for together. But that's very different to throwing up our, this is not what you're doing, Jonathan, but throwing up our hands and going, oh, how are we ever gonna change any of this? You know, And big changes happen all the time, right? We are all the beneficiaries of big changes. We've won much bigger fights than this, right? So th- I think about the fact when my grandmothers were the age I am now, you know, I mean, it was legal for their husbands to rape them, as it was legal for men to rape their wives everywhere in the world. My grandmothers weren't allowed to have bank accounts in their own name because they were married women. My One of my grandmothers in Switzerland wasn't even allowed to vote until she was 50 years old, right? Today, even the craziest wingnut wouldn't say it should be legal for women to be raped or they shouldn't be allowed to have bank accounts, or they shouldn't be allowed to vote. Incredibly big changes happen. That change happened because a lot of ordinary women and some sympathetic men just said, we're not going to take this anymore. Screw it, we're not taking it. And they fought and they fought. In the same way, I would argue with the invasion of our attention. We should be saying, we're not going to take this. We don't want to live in a society where the average office worker focuses for only three minutes. We don't want to live in a society where college students struggle to focus for more than a few minutes on any one task. This is not a good life. A life where you can't focus is a life where you are profoundly diminished at an individual level and at a collective level. It's not a coincidence, although it's not the only factor. It's not a coincidence that we're having the biggest crisis in democracy since the 1930s all over the world at the same time as we've lost our ability to focus, pay attention and listen to each other, right? We, we don't have to tolerate this, right? It's not a flaw in each of us as individuals. We can fix it. We can put it right. I went to places that were doing this. There are things we can do as individuals and many things we can do together as a society to put it right. But we've got to, we've got to have a radically different understanding of what's happening to us and where our power really lies to get back the greatest power of all, which is our ability to pay attention and focus. You mentioned that example in France. Are there any others that really caught your attention when you were researching the book? Any of these larger scale changes? Yeah, I'll give you an example of one in in New Zealand. So there's a man called Andrew Barnes, who is British, was originally British, 
and he was a, a financial trader in Britain in the 1980s. So if anyone can picture the old videos of like men in suits yelling at each other across the stock market floor, sell, buy, sell. He was one of those guys, right? And in that world, you know, you were expected to arrive at work at 7 a.m. and you were regarded as a complete wuss if you left before 7 p.m. So Andrew, for half the year, never saw the sun. He would leave for home in the dark and he would get home in the dark. He had a terrible relationship with his kids. His marriage broke down. He just chronically overworked. And Andrew was wise enough to just think, this is not the life for me. And he left. He went to Australia and New Zealand and became a hugely successful businessman. And one day in 2018, he was on a plane and he read an article that showed if you look at an average worker on an average day, they actually focus for only three hours on their job, right? Um, most of the time they're distracted, they're doing other things. And Andrew thought, well, this isn't a good deal for the employer. Actually, it isn't a good deal mainly for the employee. Your whole life is passing you by. You're not, you're not getting your job done that much, but you're also not really living right so and he remembered these days when you know he had been so exhausted and he had an idea a very simple idea that lots of people all over the world were trying at that time he figured well what if everyone who works for me just worked four days a week and i paid them the same as for five days if in return and they rested and they slept more and they got to have a bit of a life if in return they just did 45 minutes more work a day. They were, you know, that that extra rest and recuperation meant that they were produ 45 minutes more productive a day. The whole thing would pay for itself. So Andrew phoned, did a conference call with every single person who worked for him, the many hundreds of them. And he announced, everyone, from now on, you've only got to work four days a week. I'm paying you all the same. His head of HR literally fell over, right? So I went to one of the offices where they made this change, a place called Rotorua, a town in New Zealand. I interviewed everyone there. This was also monitored by, the, the, the change was also monitored by academics at the Auckland Business School. And what was fascinating was, a kind of mind-blowing, in fact, I frankly didn't believe it at first, is this company achieved more in four days than they had in five. Everywhere in the world where they've done this experiment, moved to a four-day week, from Microsoft in Japan to Toyota in Sweden, found the same thing. It's not that people achieved as much in four days, they achieved more in four days. And I didn't really understand this until in California, I went to interview an amazing man named Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer, who's one of the leading experts on organizational behavior in the world, he's at Stanford. And he said to me, it's not difficult to understand, Johan. Ask any sports fan, do you want your team to walk onto the pitch exhausted, worn out, having been playing for 10 hours a day for the last three weeks? Of course not. You want your team to walk onto the pitch rested, up for the game. Why would it be any different for other workers, right? So that's again an example in New Zealand of this experiment now very well documented and again replicated all over the world. So one of the other big changes I think we should fight for, and again this is something we have to fight for together, but it's very achievable, right? You know, one thing we also hear a lot about is the rise in disorders like ADHD, difficulty in focusing. Um, in your research, was there any correlation between all of these environmental factors impacting our attention span and ADHD numbers? Cool. I mean, for every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now 100 children who've been identified with that problem. And it's not that the doctors are uh, wrong to say these kids have attention problems. So if you look at all the mainstream textbooks, what they say very clearly, it, in theory, we have something, the kind of fancy name for it is the biopsychosocial model. So there are three kinds of cause of children's attention problems. There are biological causes like chronic lack of sleep, or for some kids, their genes can make them more sensitive to these problems. There are psychological causes. Stress profoundly harms children's attention, for example. And there are social causes that can harm children's ability to focus and pay attention, like not being allowed to go and play outside, being shut inside with screens all the time. So what's called the biopsychosocial model. There are three kinds of causes, biological, psychological, social. But what's happened is we've shrunk our explanations of this down to what one scientist calls the bio-bio-bio model. All we talk about in this is biology. Now, the biology is real. For some kids, your genes can make you more sensitive to these problems. But overwhelmingly, the epidemic we're seeing, I mean, the idea that it's a coincidence that we're seeing this explosion in children's attention problems at the same time as they're using technology specifically designed to hack and invade their attention, and they're eating food that all the scientific evidence shows profoundly harms their attention, and they're breathing in polluted air that we know causes brain inflammation, I can go down the list of the 12 causes in my book. 
it's ridiculous to say that that's a coincidence and it's ridiculous to say the only cause of these problems is some internal biological defect the kids who have more genetic sensitivity to these problems and there are some to be sure they're more like canaries in the coal mine they're experiencing these social trends more acutely than the rest of us but that doesn't mean that they're not affected by these things of course they are and again there are solutions to this now there are short-term stopgap solutions that i'm not opposed to like giving children stimulant drugs but it's not a medium to long-term solution to all these factors to just drug more and more of our children with very powerful stimulants i'm not blanketly opposed to that there's some benefits to that for some kids but we've clearly got to actually solve the problems right we've got to deal with the problem and you know again think about our school system if you wanted to design a school system that would kill children's ability to pay attention you would design the school system we have which is no fault of teachers who resisted very sensibly these changes think about the fact that you know the evidence is very clear attention attaches to meaning when something everyone listening will have experienced this when something is meaningful to you it's much easier to pay attention to it than when something is meaningless to you. But what's happened is we redesigned the entire school system around getting kids to memorise meaningless facts for stupid, meaningless tests, right? And unsurprisingly, our kids can't pay attention to that. After the No Child Left Behind Act in 2004, which massively reorganised the school system around more testing, more memorisation, diagnoses of ADHD went up by 24% in the next four years. Now, that's partly because kids don't want to memorise meaningless garbage and they're right to not want to memorise meaningless garbage. If your kid doesn't want to memorise meaningless facts, that's not a flaw in your kid, that's a strength in your kid. That'll probably make your kid more successful later in life. So again, we can deal with that by redesigning the school system, right? I went to places, Finland, for example, where they hugely redesigned the school system to make it all about meaning, about exercise, around running around, uh, around learning things the kids actually care about. And they have the lowest levels of diagnosed ADHD in the whole world, less than 0.1%, compared to, uh, the figure now is 13% in the United States of kids. So again, we, we don't have to follow these simplistic stories, right? The, the simplistic story that it's purely a biological defect is oversimplified. It's not that there, there are real biological contributions for some kids, but especially for those kids, we need to deal with the social and environmental factors that are doing this. And we absolutely can do that. It's scandalous that we are putting our kids in a situation where they're not help developing healthy ability to focus and pay attention when the science is very clear about what the solutions to that are. And it's very achievable. And there are lots of other countries in the world that are achieving kids with healthy attention spans. Johan Hari is the author of Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. Johan, thanks again for the time. Oh, I really enjoyed this, Jonathan. Thanks so much. All right, that's it for today. The producer of Life Examine is Andrea Brody. I'm your host, Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.